consequences of climate change are catastrophic. Floods, fires, droughts, rising sea levels, reduced biodiversity, and resource scarcity are but a few of the effects of failing to act. With the warmest decade on record behind us and rising emissions before us, not to mention present conversations on how to best manage climate refugees, it is unsurprising that climate change is now a leading concern among institutions and individuals around the world. This real and present threat to our planet may seem insurmountable, but there are, and have been, lessons shared on how to mitigate the damage already wrought and how to prevent future detriment. This is Megan Schaefer with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we explore two unique examples of societal adaptation to climate change, one from our past and one from our present. For our first interview, we spoke with Kenneth E. Seligson, the author of The Maya and Climate Change, Human Environmental Relationships in the Classic Period Lowlands. Professor Seligson shared insights into his work exploring the environmental resilience of the classic Maya, the environmental challenges they faced and overcame, and the lessons we can learn from them. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you share a bit about yourself and your scholarship? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, so I'm Ken Seligson. I am an archaeologist working in the northern Maya lowlands of Yucatan, Mexico. I am an assistant professor in the anthropology department at California State University, Dominguez Hills. And I was very happy to publish my book, The Maya and Climate Change, Human Environmental Relationships in the Classic Period Lowlands with Oxford University Press this past November. And I'm very happy to talk about some of my research from that book today. It seems that we often refer to the collapse of an ancient civilization, but that this isn't necessarily an accurate description. Your book focuses on the ancient Maya and in which instead of collapse, you speak of their endurance and in particular, their environmental resilience. Could you tell us about the climatic and environmental challenges this community faced? Yeah, for sure. And exactly. We, we tend to be super fascinated as a society today by the breakdown of ancient civilizations. Uh, there's definitely a morbid curiosity angle for sure, and maybe even some schadenfreude to some extent. But there's also on some level a fear about recognizing parallels between these ancient civilizations of the past and ours today and wondering whether we're heading for a same fate. Um, there's also maybe some hope on some level that we can learn from mistakes made by ancient civilizations and learn the key to avoiding uh, a similar fate as they had. So, uh, however, um, this conceptualization of the breakdown of many ancient civilizations like the Maya as a collapse can be misleading. For instance, if we think about the time scale of some of these breakdowns, the word collapse itself often connotes something happening very suddenly and all-encompassingly, or a totalitarian kind of breakdown. But uh, when we're dealing with civilizations like the classic Maya, the timescale actually spreads out over more than 200 years from the beginning to the end of this period that we refer to as the terminal classic period, or colloquially as the classic Maya collapse. So for all we know, archeologists a thousand years from now will we'll look back at the early 21st century and say we were living during the period of the early 21st century collapse. So looking out the window, you can't tell maybe that society's breaking down or maybe you can, but at the time, people living for many generations through this 200 year period would not necessarily have seen it as a collapse. Maybe they would have seen transformations happening in their socio-political systems, uh, but 
maybe the word collapse at least needs to be broken down and explained a little bit more when it's used. Because we do have some sites from the Maya lowlands, for instance, that were abandoned pretty rapidly. So you can say that individual sites, maybe even some sub-regions did collapse. But the classic Maya civilization more broadly that spanned from northern Yucatan, Mexico, through Guatemala, Belize, western Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, maybe didn't collapse. Maybe breakdown and transformation is a better way to think about it. There are definitely some aspects of classic Maya civilization that disappeared by the end of this transformational period. We don't really see the monument building and temple pyramid construction that we had during the height of the classic period. And then we also don't have, for instance, the divine rulership system that was in place during that time. But many other aspects of Maya civilization endured past this period. This period that we call the classic Maya collapse started around 700, 750 AD and went through about 1000 AD, so over 200 years long. Um, and so when we see what was going on 1000 years ago, 1300 years ago, thinking of it as a collapse can also lead to mischaracterizations about Maya civilization more broadly. When people refer to just the, the Maya collapse, people tend to think that maybe the Maya are a people of the past and that they collapsed and disappeared. Uh, but obviously what changed was this socio-political system and the Maya people and culture continued, of course, and are alive and well today with 7 million plus Maya people in Eastern Mesoamerica and around the world. So what happened in this period, roughly 1300 to 1000 years ago, was definitely a breakdown and transformation of the socio-political system due to many different factors. But the word collapse, again, can have some connotations that might be misconstrued. Uh, but when things were changing in that period, at the end of the classic period, there were many factors combining to lead to this breakdown and transformation, and among them was definitely climate change and environmental change. So just developing a society so, so complex like the classic Maya society in a humid forest environment is super challenging to begin with. Uh, agricultural societies like the classic Maya had to put a lot of work, effort, and time into cultivating fields in this environment where you have variable rainfall throughout the year. We tend to think of the forests of Mesoamerica and Central America as being these tropical rainforests, but that's not really the case. We're dealing with a semi-deciduous forest in much of the Maya lowlands. And so there's a stark difference between the rainy and the dry seasons in most places in the Maya lowlands. Uh, for much of the year, you don't have any rain at all. In northwest Yucatan, the annual average of rain is about 20 inches, which might seem like a good amount, but it's only falling for six months of the year. So really between end of December and May, you don't get much rain at all, which is definitely a big challenge if you're trying to support large populations on agricultural uh, subsistence base. So just for reference, New York City gets about 50 inches of rain per year and relatively spread out throughout the year, or precipitation at least. Yeah, so if you have almost all of your rain just falling for six months of the year, you have to develop some pretty intricate ways to capture and store water. So for several centuries at the beginning of the classic period, which began around 150 or 200 AD, it appears that the Maya across the lowlands could count on a fairly stable climate, at least predictable rainfall every year during the rainy season. 
but things began to change in the late classic period uh, and by about oh by about 600 700 AD uh, rainfall became inconsistent uh, in a lot of areas so this wasn't the first time that Maya people and Maya culture dealt with destabilized climate and environmental changes but in this case we have evidence that around 750 800 AD uh, mega droughts started to affect different parts of the lowlands where you had a decrease in rainfall for periods of 30 to 20 years the area where I work in the northern lowlands called the Puk region which means hill in Yucatec Mayan this hilly region doesn't have any surface water at all. People living in the Pook relied completely on rainfall for their daily water needs and for watering their fields. So they developed very intricate ways to capture and store water during the rainy season to last them through the dry season. But if there is little to no rain at all during what should be the rainy season, it's impossible to live in that area for more than a few years. So we do see people leaving the Pook region in the mid 900s AD. Um, and in other parts of the lowlands, because we do have these microclimates and microenvironments, things are very different across the lowlands in different subregions. In some places, you might have had these mega droughts punctuated by really powerful hurricanes, which can be super destructive on their own. So across the Maya lowlands during the classic period, and especially leading towards the end of the classic period, Maya communities developed many ways to deal with and face these challenges wrought by climate change and environmental changes. You talk about Maya ingenuity when it came to harnessing environmental resources and how there are several general lessons we can learn from the classic Maya about long-term survival in the wake of climate instability. Could you expand on this? Yeah, so about 700 years before the period of breakdown and reorganization that we know as the classic Maya collapse, there was another period of breakdown and transformation called the pre-classic collapse. That was linked also on some level to climate instability and environmental change. So uh, after several massive sites were depopulated during this period and people spread out across the landscape in new settlement patterns and founded new urban centers and new towns, and then we eventually get to the massive classic Maya civilization that we know and love today, uh, they demonstrated that they had learned from earlier mistakes and began to do some things differently. So they developed subsistence and natural resource management practices that really reflected the natural ecosystems of their local environments. Because again, across the lowlands, there are many different microenvironments. There are wetland areas, there are higher canopy forests, uh, there are scrub forests across the north. They developed agricultural and water management practices that really reflected the local conditions. So they didn't try to impose one system across the entire area. Uh, they built new sites to serve as massive water capture and storage mechanisms. So maybe you've heard of the site of Tikal in Guatemala, one of the preeminent classic period Maya sites. The whole site kind of serves as a funnel to capture rain during the rainy season and funnel it into these reservoirs. Even individual Maya households, their, their little plazas, their patio areas, were slightly angled, ever so slightly, to tip the water into storage areas. In the Puk region where I work, in addition to having surface reservoirs that could help feed a community or help provide water for a community, uh, individual households had their own subterranean storage cisterns that they would funnel water into by slightly angling everything in their local residential complexes 
to tip the water into these reservoirs. So they weren't wasting anything when the rain came. They wanted to make sure they captured and stored everything. We've been having massive rainfalls in Southern California, at least by Southern California standards, these last uh, couple of months. But so much of the water is just directed directly out to sea, out to the ocean, because they had structured the whole water management system to avoid flooding a long time ago. And we're still dealing with the effects of that. I think things are changing now. But definitely one clear lesson we could learn is to capture and store the water that we do have access to when it does come. My colleague Lisa Lucero mentioned to my students the other day that in the United States today, there are 11 million swimming pools. Uh, just try to let that sink in. And this is obviously water that is not good for drinking and is not you cannot be used to help grow any plants or anything like that. And she, she suggested that an easy fix would be if some people, instead of having a chlorinated pool in their backyard, had a more natural pond in their backyard that could still be used for swimming and recreational activities, but could also be functional. Um, so that's just a, a nice little tip there uh, from Dr. Lucero. Uh, but the Maya also practiced sustainable forest harvesting. So they got so much food and medicine and lumber and firewood from the forests, and they developed ways to make sure that they did not use up these resources and they planned ahead. Again, up where I work in the Puk region, we see the local communities adapting a new way to make burnt lime. And burnt lime was a material used for so many things in classic Maya society. It was used to make the mortar and the stucco that held their massive structures together. It was also used to treat corn to make it more nutritious. So even today, if you buy a bag of corn flour, it'll say that it's been lime treated or nishtamalized, to use the Nahuatl term, uh, because without treating corn with lime or another alkaline substance, it's really not that nutritious. So burnt lime was key to so many aspects of classic Maya society. And as far as we knew, the main way to make it was making a massive wooden pyre above ground and having it burn in on itself like an above ground oven to cook these little pieces of limestone to make burnt lime. Uh, but that uses a massive amount of wood fuel to do that. And in the Rook region where I work, towards the end of the classic period, we see a massive population spike and a massive construction boom. And it looks like they were planning ahead for this because they began to adopt a new technology for making burnt lime in which they built pit kilns that helped trap the heat and protect from the wind and probably used less wood fuel to make the burnt lime in that case. So they took a proactive approach and so we see this population boom sustained for over 200 years in the Puk region until lack of rainfall forced people to leave the area. Um, we also see the classic Maya maximizing their wetlands for agricultural uses. Across the lowlands, we have these areas called bajos or low-lying areas that would become kind of swampy and fill with water during the rainy season. And we're now finding, thanks to uh, LIDAR airborne laser scanning, areas where they cultivated these wetlands and made these wetland fields with raised areas, almost similar to the Aztec uh, chinampas. And we know that they were replenishing soil using a whole wide range of fertilizers. Um, they also, again, tailored their subsistence practices to these micro environments across the lowlands. It was not a homogenous system all across the area. They also developed trade networks where they plugged into these social networks in which one area could supply another area. If they were dealing with a particularly harsh period in their local microclimate, they could rely on neighbors in different regions. And then when the time came, 
when many sites did begin to be depopulated during the late and terminal classic period, especially across the southern lowlands, there's evidence that certain parts of the northern lowlands likely absorbed migrant populations from other parts of the lowlands into the population, and they made plans to have this flexibility to allow for a growth in local populations and the strain that it would put on resources. The fact that we see changes made to how they were making burnt lime and doing some other things around 600, 650 AD, and then this population growth continued for another 200, 250 years, shows the benefits of this proactive approach and developing a flexible pattern. So towards the end of the classic period, towards the end of this period that we know as the collapse, uh, there's no getting around it that a lot of these massive population centers like Tikal and Guatemala and Palenque in Mexico, they were depopulated. People spread out from these larger urban centers into smaller groups, uh, mostly living near natural sources of fresh water. So flexibility, uh, building systems from the start that could be adapted to changing circumstances and that can survive worst case scenarios, uh, at least for a certain amount of time, that is a key lesson that we can learn from the classic Maya about how to survive through periods of climate change. Um, but then, then there's another key lesson that we can learn as well about adaptability. We are arguably in or even past the defining moment with regards to climate, with many countries declaring a climate emergency. Do you see contemporary parallels with the challenges the ancient Maya faced? And if there's one attitude or lesson we must learn, what is that? Great question. Yeah. So um, we are definitely dealing with climate change today uh, on an even more massive scale, possibly than the Maya we're dealing with a thousand years ago. Um, one thing people point to is that one of the main differences is that the climate change we are dealing with today was definitely human uh, modified or human induced on a level that was not possible a thousand years ago. Some colleagues of mine have actually done some studies and argued that clearing a lot of the forest land for agriculture in the Maya lowlands may have exacerbated the droughts that ended up affecting the region. Uh, but that human-made climate change was definitely not on the scale that we're affecting the climate today. But despite the differences perhaps in the causes of the climate change that we're dealing with today and what the Maya dealt with over a thousand years ago, uh, there are definitely some overarching lessons that we can learn from the Maya. And honestly, the most important thing that we can learn is the willingness to adapt. We have a much more in-depth knowledge of how our climate and environments are changing and why. We have really all the tools and knowledge necessary to change the trajectory that we're on, but it's the willingness that's not really there right now. We saw that the Maya adapted their practices after the pre-classic collapse and adopted new ways of making sure their natural resource management systems were that much more in tune with what the natural ecosystems would want. But then we also see people taking the ultimate step towards the end of the terminal classic period and leaving urban centers for smaller groups of uh, population centers, uh, focusing on areas where you do have natural water resources for living. We recognize that um, we need to recognize really that nothing lasts forever. Um, the way society set up today may seem like the culmination of centuries of progress, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the only way to live or the best way to live. So it's kind of grim to think of it that way, but if we think of it in a more positive um, lens through a more positive perspective, change is always going to happen. Just because we've been doing things a certain way for now, it doesn't mean it's the right way or the only way. We see how the Maya 
took a proactive approach to things like changing up how they were making a key material that they needed for so many aspects of society. They took action before things got too bad. Uh, we can still be proactive today, even though we've passed some uh, thresholds that are very, very concerning and scary. It doesn't mean all is lost. We can still plan ahead. We need to recognize that all aspects of our global societies today are connected and that water conservation cannot necessarily be sectioned off from agricultural sustainability or forest management and addressed on its own. They're all interconnected. So really the main lessons that we can learn from the classic Maya are the importance of knowledge, planning, and structural flexibility. And again, the willingness to adapt what we've been doing now for some time. Thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate you sharing your scholarship with us. Thank you so much, Megan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. For our second interview, we welcome Scott M. Moore, the author of China's Next Act, How Sustainability and Technology Are Reshaping China's Rise and the World's Future. He addressed contemporary China's meteoric and controversial rise to a global power, its leading role in sustainability and technology, and what this means for countries and institutions around the world. Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the research that you do? Absolutely, uh, Megan, and thank you so much uh, for having me uh, today uh, on the podcast. Very happy to, to be here. Um, China's Next Act, the book that uh, we're here to talk about is actually my second with OUP, so I'm thrilled to have that, uh, have that relationship. Uh, and really, uh, my research in China's Next Act really started uh, from an experience that I had uh, working uh, outside academia in the world of policy um, for the U.S. Department of State uh, on something called the China Desk, which is the office that handles U.S.-China relations. And I had the opportunity to work there uh, soon after finishing uh, graduate school um, and uh, had a, a portfolio uh, that's called Environment, Science, Technology, and Health. Uh, and I have to tell you that for somebody coming out of graduate school where you know the focus is really on relentless uh, specialization, uh, showing up and and kind of being told you're you're responsible for covering all of these these issues, environment, science, technology, health, uh, really seemed somewhere between uh, laughable and and maybe downright dangerous to expect uh, you know one person to kind of cover all of those different areas. Um, but actually, at least when it comes to China, um, that proved to be a really interesting um, brief to have, especially when I was there um, back in 2015, 2016, because in that period, um, public health and climate change uh, both became very significant and central issues in the U.S.-China relationship. This was the period uh, uh, leading up to the Paris Agreement on climate change. And uh, really, we saw in that period these sort of newer, less familiar environmental and technological issues move from being you know, important but somewhat marginal issues in the US-China relationship uh, to among the most important. Um, and that observation, that shift has really been what I've uh, tried to explain and explore uh, through my research, uh, both trying to look at how that shift has affected uh, China's foreign policy, its relationship with the US and other countries, and what that means for China's role in tackling shared global challenges um, like climate change. Uh, and in the last couple of years, uh, of course, what all that means uh, in light of growing uh, tensions and rivalry between China and other countries, most notably the United States. 
In recent years, China has pushed the visibility of their global influence. In which areas is this most evident, and in which areas would they prefer their influence to be most evident? So one of the big themes of China's next act, uh, and really my work uh, more generally, uh, is that China's role in the world is increasingly being shaped by developments in two big issue areas. One is uh, sustainability, uh, and I include in that category uh, public health, uh, as well as climate change and other environmental issues, and emerging technology. And I think one example um, of how China's image and role in the world and influence uh, is being affected by developments in those two areas is in climate change. And I would argue that climate change is probably the global issue which China has had most success in uh, gaining credibility and recognition uh, as a great power uh, that is equal in stature to the world's other great powers, the United States, the European Union, Japan, et cetera. That credibility and standing and uh, recognition is due mostly to China's role as the largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gas emissions and especially carbon dioxide emissions. Um, China has been the largest emitter since the early 2000s. And it's used that significance and that standing in international climate uh, talks and negotiations to portray itself both to the international community and even more importantly to uh, its own domestic uh, population and audience uh, as a country that is uh, not only willing but able to tackle some of the most complex shared global uh, governance challenges that face the world today. Another sort of theme I explore um, in the book, though, is how China's role in addressing these shared global challenges like climate change has really been complicated by geopolitical tension and rivalry with other countries. Um, and one example of that is how uh, China's standing in international climate issues has shifted just over the last half a year or so, um, partly in response to uh, tensions over Taiwan, uh, in the aftermath of which uh, China, uh, for a time, suspended climate dialogue with the United States. And then at the most recent UN climate conference, uh, COP27 in November, where really for the first time you saw concerted uh, pressure placed on China by other developing countries to increase its uh, financial support for climate adaptation. That's really a new issue and a new sort of demand uh, placed on China and one that called its um, standing in international climate uh, talks and policy uh, into question. Uh, so we are seeing that, uh, uh, that position shifting pretty rapidly, uh, but it's an example, I think, of how China's uh, broader foreign policy, its efforts to project soft power and enhance its standing more broadly, have increasingly been focused uh, in the uh, ecological and technological domains. What impact has China's recent focus on sustainability and technology had on their economy and on their foreign and domestic policy? So this is another, in some ways, the central uh, reason that I argue that sustainability and emerging technology are so important to how we should be thinking about China's rise uh, and its role uh, in the world. On one hand, uh, China is uh, very heavily impacted by climate change and by climate risk. Uh, and we saw that in very dramatic fashion 
just uh, last summer when China was subject to uh, what's almost certainly the most severe heat wave um, on record uh, in terms of its uh, duration, its intensity, the number of people affected, probably suppressed China's GDP growth for 2022 by uh, about 0.3%, a very significant uh, uh, issue. On the other hand, uh, China's leaders have for some time, and we're really talking about going on uh, 15 years or so, been pretty convinced uh, that adopting a very ambitious uh, set of objectives to expand uh, clean energy uh, production and deployment is essential for China's economic future. And they really see investment in those areas, clean technology as important drivers of growth for China going forward. Uh, and an important way to help shift China uh, and its economy away from this uh, currently pretty resource-intensive, export-led, low-value-added manufacturing economy to one that is uh, much less uh, uh, polluting, higher-value-added, more high-tech, and more focused on uh, domestic consumption and investment. Those two really go together. On the other hand, uh, China has invested very, very significantly in uh, the adoption and development of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, quantum computing, in part as a way to address some very serious economic uh, challenges that are on the horizon, uh, like demographic uh, change. And this came into the news uh, just a couple of weeks ago when it emerged that in 2022, China's population fell for the first time since the 1960s. Uh, and that really underscored the fact that China faces an impending demographic crunch. Um, in order to escape the drag that that would place on growth, uh, China's going to have to increase productivity um, very rapidly, which is where uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, come into play. So both in the sustainability and technology arenas, you're really seeing those areas start to play a really, really important role uh, in China's uh, economic development trajectory, and by extension, its policy in many different areas, including foreign policy. And we talked a little bit about how um, that is reflected in uh, China's role in international climate talks. Uh, another example is in uh, development uh, and overseas investment, where you know, the Belt and Road is sort of the signature Chinese uh, strategic policy in that space. Um, and what you've seen over time uh, is that being shifted from uh, essentially high volume a uh, very large mega project investment uh, to smaller scale um, and at least rhetorically um, more sustainable investments that take greater account of uh, the environmental and social impacts um, of uh, Chinese funded projects in third countries. So another example, I think, of how these sort of sustainability considerations have really started to shape um, China's policy in a bunch of different areas. What does this more complex China picture mean for foreign governments and for businesses? Basically, and this is another kind of key dilemma um, that I, I wrestle with in the book, China's indispensable in tackling shared global challenges, whether it's uh, climate change, uh, preventing future pandemics, uh, or regulating uh, the development of emerging technologies. And in the book, I talk a lot about gene editing, uh, as well as artificial intelligence and technologies that really do pose some, some significant risks 
for uh, safety, security, privacy, uh, human rights. And it's really uh, pretty much impossible to have a global uh, solution to uh, those shared global challenges without China. At the same time, cooperation uh, with China, and in particular, the Chinese government, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, and the Chinese state, has become a lot more difficult for uh, several reasons. One uh, is this growing geopolitical tension and rivalry uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, but another uh, has to do with developments in areas like human rights, where uh, growing repression, uh, violations of human rights in places like Xinjiang have really sort of created uh, a moral uh, and ethical dilemma for foreign governments, for foreign businesses, for uh, foreign organizations in, uh, in engaging uh, with Chinese partners. And I don't think any of those issues mean that we shouldn't be pursuing cooperation and looking for areas to work together, um, but they definitely complicate matters. And I think what that means for foreign governments and businesses is that they have to think uh, very carefully and deliberately about exploring engagement and partnership with uh, Chinese counterparts. Um, there are a couple specific uh, strategies I talk about in the book, um, but particularly for uh, companies, um, I think every country really needs uh, a, a core sort of China uh, vision and, uh, and mission statement that reflects its core values, um, and it does take account of uh, moral and ethical uh, dilemmas in addition to thinking about more immediate political and economic pressures, um, you know, including now export uh, control restrictions uh, and uh, different policies that are likely to really complicate trade and investment, cross-border data flows, all of those things that are very important to private sector operations uh, of foreign firms in China. Uh, the, the kind of tagline is that all of these issues are becoming much more complex, um, and that means that decisions uh, have to be uh, a lot more deliberate. They have to be rooted in core values, um, and they also have to, I think, take account of risk along a growing number of dimensions, uh, political, economic, geopolitical, as well as uh, moral, ethical. You mentioned that tackling shared global challenges such as climate change will be difficult, if not impossible, without China. Why is this the case, and are there other global challenges for which you feel cooperation with China is imperative? So there are two linked aspects of China's rise over the past 40 years um, that I talk about in the book and that I think really underpin this importance, this central uh, importance of China uh, in tackling shared global challenges. And one is the emergence of China as really the central node for uh, global manufacturing. Um, there really is no uh, alternative to China when it comes to the uh, physical production of manufactured goods. Um, and while we're seeing uh, a lot of supply chains shift and reorient in response to the pandemic, to uh, geopolitical uh, concerns and rising wages in China, lots of different factors, the, the fact is uh, there's really no country positioned to supplant China as the center uh, of the world's manufacturing industry. And what that means uh, is that China uh, is the single biggest and most important player when it comes to addressing most global environmental issues. Um, in particular, climate change, that's the most visible example where 
Um, one kind of implication of that uh, dominance in manufacturing is that China has the highest emissions. Uh, and that's true not just in total aggregate terms, but also uh, in terms of uh, China's carbon intensity, so the amount of carbon uh, dioxide that China's economy emits to create a, a given unit of production is about twice that of the European average, for example. But it also means that uh, when you think about things like uh, uh, as a driver of mineral extraction or natural resource uh, extraction around the world, China is the single biggest driver because it's taking those raw material inputs and creating manufactured goods using them. So China has really become the, the central node for all of these pressures on the world's ecosystems and its natural resources uh, on one hand. And on the, on the other hand, China has kind of stood out among other developing countries in the amount of resources and uh, policy support that it's given to developing advanced emerging technologies. Artificial intelligence uh, is a great example. And because of that level of investment uh, and support, China has emerged as uh, an indispensable country when it comes to the regulation of these same emerging technologies. It's basically impossible to envision an effective global sort of set of rules or, or norms and standards that try to mitigate some of the risks posed by uh, development of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies that doesn't include China because of the amount of investment and attention that it has paid to the development of these sectors and technologies. And that's, that's uh, distinct from a lot of other developing countries. There are some exceptions. India is also a significant player when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence um, and things like that. But really, China stands out even among some of those other countries in terms of the scale of its investment and the amount of activity that's going on in uh, research development and deployment of these emerging technologies. So for that reason as well, uh, China is really indispensable uh, on the emerging technology side, as well as on the uh, ecology and sustainability side. How advanced is Chinese strategy with regards to technology and sustainability when compared to the other great powers? I think in terms of the actual strategy and policy, um, it's at least as, uh, and probably in many respects, more advanced. Um, and again, you know, thinking about areas like artificial intelligence or biotechnology, there are these very detailed, and in many cases, fairly long-standing plans uh, to uh, really try to catapult China to uh, to leadership positions uh, in these uh, in these technologies, uh, kind of effectively skipping a couple generations of technological development um, that you've seen in other other countries, uh, including the U.S. What isn't quite as well developed, uh, though, are some of the institutional um, infrastructure uh, pieces um, that support uh, innovation and advanced research and development in those areas. So uh, if you look at highly innovative uh, economies and ecosystems that you see in uh, places like uh, certain parts of the U.S., Silicon Valley, Israel, other places around the world, there are a lot of sort of social and really sort of cultural and organizational factors that really seem to, uh, to play a significant role in making those ecosystems so productive. And there are things like um, very dense and sort of frictionless ties between uh, government, between uh, private sector uh, entities, universities, um, other key kind of actors in innovation 
norms around things like uh, tolerating and even venerating failure, which uh, is is very common um, when it comes to technological development and particularly trying to make money off of it or find useful applications uh, for it. And a lot of these kind of more uh, soft aspects of innovation uh, infrastructure um, still aren't as well developed in China. Um, and that's partly just a process of development and catching up. Um, but there are also some, some structural things that, um, that impede the development of that kind of more software uh, to the innovation ecosystem. And it's things like authoritarian uh, control of uh, information, um, disincentives for cross-organization and interdisciplinary collaboration, the perception and, and in some cases the reality of kind of state persecution really of, of entrepreneurs in certain sectors. Um, so all of those factors um, are systemic barriers to uh, the development of uh, innovation ecosystems in China like those we see elsewhere. That doesn't mean that China is not a really significant player in technology. As I mentioned earlier, it is and, and will become even more indispensable going forward. It also doesn't mean that China uh, is not capable of producing really significant innovations. And we have seen a couple of examples of that already. Um, I would argue that WeChat uh, is a very innovative uh, tool and platform that we don't really have an analog for elsewhere in the world. There are more uh, industry and sector specific examples in areas like uh, cancer uh, therapeutics and things like that. So it's not the case that you know, there's sort of like a black and white difference between China and other countries in terms of the ability to innovate. But there are these sort of systemic um, issues that I think call into question uh, the overall ability of, uh, of Chinese firms and, and institutions to necessarily match the productivity um, on a per capita basis uh, uh, to what we see elsewhere. Final point on that, though, um, is that I don't think that uh, should be any kind of uh, a source of complacency uh, for policymakers or uh, executives who are concerned about uh, competitiveness and ability to compete with uh, Chinese firms and institutions in developing advanced technology. Um, and we do see that Chinese firms and institutions have demonstrated lots of advantages uh, in commercialization and deployment. I think there are a lot of lessons and reasons to, uh, to reinvest uh, in uh, research and development enterprises uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere. You mentioned how in some areas competition can be good for the planet, but in other areas such as artificial intelligence and other disruptive new technologies, it could be catastrophic. Could you elaborate further on this? Yeah, thanks so much uh, for, the, for that question. And you're right, that is an argument I make uh, in the book. So typically, we think of these sort of global challenges like climate change as things that really require cooperation uh, between countries to properly address. Whereas, and as, as we were just sort of talking about, um, emerging technologies, it sort of become accepted to think about those as areas of competition, um, you know, Chinese firms or Chinese institutions are, you know, are, uh, are they are they in the lead? Are they sort of outstripping uh, competitors in the U.S. or elsewhere? Um, sort of become uh, uh, common to think of, of those uh, issues as areas of uh, economic, if not geopolitical uh, competition. But one of the things I argue in the book is that that kind of framing may have it more or less backwards in the sense that. There are a couple of examples of ways in which I think 
economic or geopolitical competition can help promote uh, particularly clean energy development, um, whereas uh, you really do, I think, need some level of international cooperation to properly uh, tackle these challenges related to emerging technologies. So one example uh, I point to in, in where uh, competition might actually be good for the planet uh, is the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed in the U.S. Uh, this past summer. If everything goes as planned, um, the estimates uh, suggest that that piece of legislation could uh, reduce U.S. emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, by about 45 percent uh, as we head toward the middle of the century. What's significant about that is that in his message to Congress saying, if you pass this bill, I will sign it, President Biden specifically referred to the need for this legislation in order to help equip the United States to compete more effectively with China, including in clean energy development. And I hasten to say that I don't think, you know, sort of competition um, is, is necessarily the best or only reason uh, you want to invest in clean energy and clean technology. But if it gets us a 45 percent reduction in U.S. emissions, that's really something worth thinking about. In other words, uh, I think what we can take away from that is the lesson that there is something politically quite appealing about using this argument about competition and competitiveness um, to convince uh, politicians to invest in clean energy and clean technology. So I think in that respect, there is uh, some promise to how competition uh, can help uh, uh, drive action on climate change. Uh, on the other hand, as I mentioned, uh, in order to really make progress in regulating these emerging technologies, and one risk I talk about uh, in the book is around gene editing and the, the possibility that either deliberately or mistakenly a researcher somewhere in the world uh, ends up creating a dangerous uh, kind of organism or, or new virus or, or, or whatever uh, using gene editing techniques that then gets released into the environment and, uh, and, and causes uh, havoc. Um, it's hard to see how you could really prevent something like that from happening and really controlling uh, access to potentially dangerous uh, genetic material um, without uh, some type of new international agreement, which is going to require international cooperation. So that's really where that that argument and observation comes from. But I do think it's something we should be thinking much more about the need for uh, greater cooperation when it comes to emerging technologies, even if uh, there is maybe a little bit more of a role for competition on the, the climate and uh, environmental side of the equation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Scott, and thank you for sharing your scholarship with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Megan. We want to thank our guests, Kenneth E. Seligson and Scott M. Moore, for speaking with us about climate change, sustainability, the classical Maya, and contemporary China. Please explore our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas and themes discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 81 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Patrick Horton-Wright, and me, Megan Schaefer. Thank you for listening.